So good to be able to come together this afternoon, isn't it? To appreciate that not only have we been blessed with an earlier opportunity for worship and that period of service this morning, but yea, as the clothes, as the shades of evening gather about us, that yet another tremendous opportunity is ours. And we're so thankful, our eldership and membership alike, that each of us have seen fit to pursue this time of encouragement, of worship, of edification, of those things that truly are most needful in life. As I selected the lesson for tonight and turned attention to, to what I thought would be a, a particular lesson that would be beneficial and useful, I selected as the title what you see on the wall to my left, Understanding Cultural Passages. And I believe in a few moments you'll see the direction I would wish us to consider in the development of that lesson, but a particular emphasis and a rather strong one at that on that cultural aspect of passages of the Word of God. You'll notice on this opening slide, trying to set the groundwork or at least some consideration for it, moving in this consideration, that Bible that you hold in your lap, that Word of God that you and I with such respect and such strong consideration lift it unlike any other book for it stands and towers over all of them. It is true, isn't it, that you and I read just a moment ago or heard read to us that text in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and following. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. As often as you and I have reflected on that passage and notice the unique way in which it presents the Word of God, we'll use that as a springboard for the discussion and consideration of our lesson this evening. For isn't it true that that Bible surely should be enormously respected, placed upon a zenith, a pinnacle if you please, for as we noted earlier, it truly towers above all other writings. Surely in light of that, you'll notice then some of these considerations. You probably are well aware or maybe have heard of words such as this one, hermeneutics. It sounds like an unusual word, and in fact, the very tenor, the thrust of it, quite frankly, is simple. It is that particular discipline which makes a study of proper interpretation. Now, the particular, the singular way in which it almost seems as if that has been developed has to do with the Bible. And so it is, the study of the methodological principles of interpretation, especially of the Bible, in fact, if you were to attend one of the Bible institutions around our land, it wouldn't at all be unusual to take an entire course, maybe multiple courses, in which you study hermeneutics. How to rightly interpret this book. How to, in fact, properly use a methodological set of ideas and principles so that you can reach a right understanding of that which it says. All of us would agree that is vitally important. Tonight, though, we're going to study some of the positions, or at least some of the issues that can be very problematic. So much so that they have offered a whole host of challenges and difficulties for those Bible believers who would wish to do simply and only what the Word of God teaches correctly. It is in that vein I would invite us to contemplate. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. God even indicates the need to rightly divide it 
and hence the suggestion, the importance of hermeneutics. As we close that slide, may I suggest that one of the key approaches that the hermeneutical idea makes use of is cultural considerations, almost exclusively. And by that I mean the taking of a passage and to seek to find the meaning in that passage by only attaching it to the context of the culture in which it was written. All of us would be quick to agree culture is important, no doubt about that. But does that culture determine the meaning of the passage? Does it determine exclusively and thoroughly only that which can be drawn by way of its meaning? And therein lies a concern, and I would invite you to develop it with me this evening. As we do that, I thought we would perhaps pose the following issues first. This next slide is one that highlights the following. Isn't it true that there are models, approaches, perspectives, if you will, in which one can use that as a lens through which you approach the Bible? Could I call to your attention the famous statement of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5? Even Gamaliel, in fact, recognized the reality of this consideration. You may remember near the close of that chapter, Gamaliel in that very memorable speech before those authorities of his day, he said, beginning in verse 35, And said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. Remember, Peter and John had been called in to be questioned because they were teaching in the name of Jesus and they had previously been told not to do that. But they did it anyway. And yet as they were hauled in again for questioning, Gamaliel said, Gentlemen, you'd better think very carefully what you do to these men. Because notice how he explained it in the next verse. Verse 36, For before these days rose up Thudas, boasting himself to be somebody to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who were who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. The next verse. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Gamaliel makes mention of two particular characters, and they, by their preaching and the manner in which they taught, they gathered a following. And there were people who were very enamored by what they had to say. But Gamaliel said, you know what? This teaching has now come to nothing. The leaders died. Those that have been dispersed that once followed it, that teaching never amounted to anything. Gamaliel said, watch what you do to these men. If what they're teaching is of God, you can't defeat it. But if what they're teaching is not of God, it's going to die on its own anyway. Well, may I use that as a guide to help us consider tonight. There have been some models in terms of biblical considerations and teaching. And sometimes these models that men have thought up, they haven't amounted to anything because it wasn't true. But if what men have taught is the truth, God will see to it that it will continue to be meaningful and it will continue to be necessary. Surely along that line, you'll notice that one of the approaches then that has gained some strong emphasis in our lifetime has been this so-called historical critical approach. I put in quotation marks. 
maybe you've heard about it, the historical critical approach to Bible interpretation. That historical critical approach, again, is one that is expected that most will be trained in it if they're going to a Bible institution. You and I may have never attended an institution like that. But what I would wish us to do tonight is to ask, in all of its particulars, is it always true that every element of that is biblically accurate? Is it correct? Is it a right approach? In fairness, I've tried to summarize at the bottom one key idea in it. It has to do with culture. Let me state it like this. This historical critical approach relies on the culture to determine the basis almost exclusively for the interpretation of a passage of the Bible. Now, I put culture in italics. Again, lifting it highly because I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not saying culture is not important. As we come to the book of Corinthians, for example, we have found it very useful to understand what was the culture of that town. What particular issues were they battling? Why did Paul then have to say some of the direct and strong things he did? That's useful. But that's different from saying the culture has determined everything that might be gleaned from the Bible passage. Case in point will be some of the things we're going to study in just a minute. As you and I close that slide, may I say to you that on occasion this matter of the culture has been used to dictate everything from the elements of worship to the plan of salvation to what constitutes morality. May I ask, is it fair to say then culture has determined all of that? Is it not true the Word of God stands supreme and it is God who determines those things, sometimes wholly separate and apart from anything the culture has to say about it? For some examples of all this, although it isn't a typical approach I like to take, I have some very lengthy quotations and I'm going to read them. And I'd like you to listen to these particulars that have been asserted relative to Bible interpretation. This one is going to make an initial consideration. We're all aware of the culture in which we live today relative to homosexuality, relative to bestiality, relative to transgender issues and considerations. We understand all about that which we hear. And yet you and I know the Bible does have things to say about this. And yet here is a quotation from a rather leading individual in religious circles touching this subject, would you listen to what he has to say? When asked a question about does Romans chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 condemn in any way homosexuality, this was his answer. No. Romans 1 verses 26 and 27 does not condemn gays, transgendered people, lesbians, or bisexuals. All Christians have a duty before God to interpret Scripture honestly. In context, instead of divorcing verses from their context and then insisting they mean something, they never intended to be meant in the original. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, 
and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. So he correctly quoted Romans 1, verses 26 and 27. And with that, you'll notice he emphatically said that that text does not condemn homosexuality in any way. In fact, he even asserted, if one is honest with the passage and let the culture be the guide, that passage does not condemn it, he said. Let's listen to what else he said. Because all Scripture is given in a biblical, cultural, doctrinal, historical, linguistic, literary, and religious context, those factors must be part of our thinking as we seek to understand Scripture. Romans 1, verses 26 and 27 was given in a very clear context, he says. And finally, he asserts, There is no cultural indication, no doctrinal indication, no historical indication, no linguistic indication, no literary indication, no religious indication that Paul intended to blast lesbians and gays in Romans 1, verses 26 and 27. Those kind of quotations could be amplified many times over. Individuals who will make a claim that the proper interpretation, the hermeneutical principle applied to passages like that one say it does not teach what you and I have believed. It does not teach, they say, what is asserted in what appears to be clear passages of the Word of God. You'll notice he makes a very strong statement. We have not used the context and we have not used the culture in which Paul wrote that to help us understand it. You begin to gain a feeling, do you not, that he asserts one must allow the culture in its particulars and in its details to guide one's thinking relative to interpretation of a passage like that one and yea, so many others. Now, I placed at the bottom of the previous slide the source where I received that. If you choose to look at it, it, there is a great deal of information made available by not only that gentleman, but a whole host of others. The point is, here's a subject. And not only that passage, but others have placed it as a matter that's not pleasing to God, and yet it's explained away as if the culture says, you're looking at it all wrong. God doesn't have any problem with this, we're told. As you and I reflect upon that, notice what hermeneutics, this so-called cultural movement, the historical critical approach has led this gentleman to say. It is true, isn't it, that as you look at that consideration, might I suggest that that historical critical approach makes many things viewed very differently. Here's another example. This one is perhaps one of the most favorable ones in light of these matters. It, too, is a lengthy quotation. As I read it, I would ask you to think with me for a moment again about this which is being asserted. Now, the statement I read earlier was not due, as far as I know, to a Church of Christ preacher. This one is. A preacher for the Stamford Church of Christ in Stamford, Connecticut made this statement. Concerning those texts traditionally used to restrict or silence women in our worship assemblies, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33 and following, and 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and following, which approach to biblical interpretation is most consistent, honest, and therefore valid. Do we simply accept them at face value, separate from their literary and historical context? 
Or do we determine to the best of our ability the original intent of the writer, in this case Paul, by reconstructing as accurately as we can the real-life context using all of the linguistic, literary, and historical insights available to us? With regard to many practices, to cite a few examples, foot washing, speaking in tongues, the holy kiss, and female adornment, clearly we have relied upon establishing original intent. Consider, for example, how on an issue like tongue speaking, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5, we point quickly to historical context and original intent, noting that Paul was addressing the specific circumstances of his day. The truth is that sound biblical interpretation has always relied upon the best knowledge of historical context available. Perhaps the real question occurs when we break from our usual pattern on a particular issue to downplay context and original intent. When we do this, what is really motivating us? So what is the principle of selectivity we have used to justify not washing one another's feet, not greeting with a holy kiss, not laying on hands, women not wearing veils, women disregarding injunctions against braided hair or expensive clothes, while still insisting women be silent in our public assemblies? And why? On what basis can we justify appealing our original intent on so many other matters and largely disregarding it with respect to this subject? When we pick and choose sometimes from within the same passage those matters to which we will apply the letter of the law while disregarding it in others, and those which we will not, we are not being objective, reasonable, or consistent. We here at Stamford and in many other places are trying to find a consistent principle of interpretation so that we will not simply be picking and choosing on the basis of personal whim masculine bias, or cultural tradition. It is our conclusion that those passages that restrict women's participation in public worship address specific circumstances in the particular cultural context of their original first century audiences. We will no longer use these to silence women's voices in our assemblies. End of quote. Now, one more time, you'll notice the culture has been almost exclusively the basis upon which he has made his conclusion. And so it is that you and I, of course, appreciate that that's our subject this evening. We've posed an issue before all of us about how to properly interpret the Word of God. As you can see on these two examples, I suppose if one wished to do it, you probably could almost relegate any Bible subject to culture. If you don't want to particularly follow the Lord's teaching on baptism, relegate those passages in the New Testament to some cultural specific for Jewish days about 20 centuries ago and therefore excuse one's necessary obedience to it today. If you happen not to prefer to assemble on the first day of the week, find some way to justify accusing it to be cultural in the, in the New Testament and therefore meet whatever day you like. You can see where this could easily end. Again, you could practically take any subject to which you happen not to like it or be favorable with it and find some way to attach it to cultural passages in the New Testament and excuse your obedience to it. 
and you did notice the argument that latter gentleman used. Foot washing, women wearing veils. You'll notice he's built a straw man and tried to blow it over. All proper interpretations of those passages, as we're about to see in a moment, directly allow us to appreciate that they were cultural in their thrust. We're going to have to ask, is Romans 1 cultural in its discussion of the homosexual agenda? Is 1 Timothy 2 cultural as it discusses the nature of women's role in worship? Those are great questions. As we have discussed those matters tonight, raising them, we might use our lesson then to say this, so how do you know whether it's fair to interpret a passage with a cultural thrust? That's a great question. Let's see if we can answer it in the remainder of our time tonight. As you come to this next slide, I've entitled it Bible Interpretation in Culture. As you and I have lifted high the banner of proper Bible interpretation, we have always sought to let the Bible speak where it speaks and for you and I to be silent where it is silent. It is never our desire to insert into it merely what we wish or we think it says. That'll do us no good on the day of judgment. And so, notice with me some of these principles. And it's a very important one to notice at the outset. The New Testament, in light of its authority, and in light of its presentation, is not, and I repeat, is not based on culture. Its authority rests on something far stronger than that. For after all, you and I know cultures change. The culture in Tennessee today perhaps bears little resemblance to the culture in ancient Rome, the culture in ancient Jerusalem, the culture even a thousand years ago. The bedrock truths of the Word of God are etched and they are cemented on far more stronger foundation than that. Consider with me some of these matters. Jesus Himself made this statement near the close of the gospel according to Matthew. After our Lord had been crucified and even after He had been resurrected, it was He who said, All power hath been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Isn't it true in that the Lord said that all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth? Notice, there's no reference to culture at all in that statement. None. And not only that, in the next passage, you go and teach all nations. Teach them what? Whatsoever I've commanded you. The authority vested in those apostles as they were thus sent forth to preach and to proclaim is an authority that had nothing to do by its basic character at least, to the nature of what culture permitted or didn't. They were to preach the unassailable truth of God. Didn't Paul tell Timothy, preach the Word? But Timothy, you may remember, was stationed in Ephesus. That was a city known not only for its idolatry, but known for the characteristic ways that sometimes were similar even to Corinth. And yet what Paul told Timothy was, you preach the Word. Culture doesn't dictate what you preach or how you preach it. You preach the Word. Isn't it true then in light of that? It brings us to a host of other passages, some of which we even noticed in our lesson this morning. 
Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Notice those to whom Paul wrote that, the church at Colossae. Now, culturally, Colossae was known as a very interesting and unusual place. It was positioned there in the ancient Lycus River Valley in Asia Minor, and yet to that group of people, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. There was no reference to culture dictating various basic matters of authority. Isn't it true that you give thought to that? What about obedience to the gospel? You and I know today, and we even have heard about it in some reports from our mission friends who have come back from distant places. Sometimes it is culturally challenging for individuals who find themselves in a male-dominated society to submit to things like obedience to the gospel. Do we change the message, though, because it's difficult or challenging? Our missionary friends don't, and you and I, of course, don't either. We understand, do we not, then, that those matters of obedience to the gospel are not conditioned on culture. They weren't then and they aren't now. You'll notice then there are certain things we could never ever merely assert are matters of cultural consideration. As you give thought, for instance, to baptism, do you suppose it would be possible for someone to construct an argument such that Jews under the Old Testament era had certain ceremonial ritual cleansings to which they were to apply themselves. And so could one argue then that baptism should be viewed only in that light and therefore perhaps baptism isn't something important for general obedience today. Think about the fallacy of that argument. There's not a word of truth in that other than the fact that certain kinds of washings were in the Old Testament. But you'll notice Jesus never asserted that baptism was only for people that were Jews. He never taught that baptism was only for people who had a background in Hebrew characteristics. Baptism was for everybody who wanted to be a Christian, who wanted to go to heaven, who wanted to appreciate the nature of what the God of heaven had set forth by the coming of His Son. Notice there was nothing cultural then about that matter of baptism. What about the various items of worship? You and I become excited as we think about singing and praying and partaking of the Lord's Supper, the opportunity to give as we've been prospered, and the studying of the Word of God. Could one make an argument that perhaps those were in some sense only a cultural representation of what the first century was a part of? So today, it frees me from that maybe, and I can do whatever I want in worship. Notice again, the New Testament never conditioned those elements of worship on the culture of that day. And aren't you impressed that what Paul taught the Corinthians, he taught the Colossians, he taught the Philippians, he taught the Thessalonians, all of them were given the same elements in worship. Notice again, that isn't cultural. Nothing cultural about it. Perhaps you can see as we come near the close of that slide then, what if we come near full circle? Mr. Pauls a moment ago made a strong statement. In his studied opinion and many others as well, these passages in the New Testament that place restrictions on the role of women, they were intended for the culture of that day and no more, he said. 
And we are perfectly within our right to relax those considerations. And so as we study them, we appreciate that was only Paul's meaning for Corinth of that day or for Timothy and Ephesus of that day. Is he right about that? Would you please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and let God answer that question? Mr. Paul's is absolutely mistaken. His whole approach... Notice he claimed it was cultural. Let's let Paul tell us then on what authority it rests. If Paul explains it for us, it no longer leaves us with any question or doubt about it. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, begin reading with me in verse number 8. I will therefore that men pray everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And as you and I reach that point, we've reached an occasion of Paul's We see then that what on face value, and even Mr. Paul's admitted, on face value that appears to say that there's a restriction on what the God of heaven permits a woman to do in a public assembly in terms of usurping authority over a man. That face value has led Mr. Paul's to say, but the culture leads to a wholly different understanding of this. And we who are enlightened, we who appreciate the culture, See it exactly for what Paul knew it to be, and it's not a perpetual restriction, he said. Would you read with me verse 13 and 14? This is the authority on which this is, this is resting. And we shall ask if it has anything to do with culture. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Question. Upon what basis did Paul assert the reality of the statements he just made? Was it based on the culture in Corinth, Philippi, Jerusalem, Antioch, Thessalonica, or any other place? Any cities at all even listed? There aren't any. Verse number 13 begins with the word for. In English, that's a conjunction used in that case, a word of explanation. It's true the word can be a preposition, but you'll notice it isn't so there. It is a word that is a conjunction linking that to what precedes it. This is the justification for why Paul said what he said. For Adam was first formed in Eve. The premise, the principle upon which this statement rests goes all the way back to the creation. How far back? Creation has nothing to do with any culture anywhere. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Not only that, look at what else happened in verse 14. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Paul, why then are you making this assertion? And why has God through you made this assertion? It had nothing to do with culture. Absolutely nothing. It goes back to the very nature of the creation and the events that transpired in Eden. And based on what transpired then, this is a timeless feature that must be characteristic of proper worship. Mr. Paul's was absolutely wrong. 
you'll notice that, that assertion that he has made. And the distinction, he made no usage of this particular context, did he? For Paul told us what the context was. Isn't it rather fascinating as you come near the close of that slide that what Paul taught the church in Ephesus, he also taught the church in Corinth. Notice this consistency of it in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35. Maybe in fairness to all that, we should then say this, the historical critical approach can lead one to go much too far to relegate certain things simply to culture and then to excuse their obedience to it is to do disservice to the Word of God. It's blatant disobedience. We must then be cautious and very careful before we take a passage and simply say that's cultural and unimportant today. How do you then tell if a passage is cultural? How do you tell if something about it, perhaps by the nature of God's wisdom, was intended to only be cultural. My intent on this slide is to bring a few observations before us and then to draw some final conclusions. It does seem that God does in His Word give us information how to answer this question. As you and I begin that slide, may I say it would appear that it is not wise to interpret any passage of Scripture in an exclusively culturally limited way unless the text indicates it should be interpreted that way. Let me say that again. We ought not to look upon a particular passage and excuse it only to be something restricted to culture unless the passage in some way indicates that. Because as we've learned already this evening, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and its principles are timeless. May I say, only unless God tells us otherwise should we not interpret it that way. As you, for instance, look at those homosexuality passages that you and I noticed earlier in Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6 or 1 Timothy chapter 1, do any of those passages indicate that those particular statements are intended to be cultural only? You and I could read Romans chapter 1, and you might notice in that particular passage, Paul is describing the sins of Gentiles, wherever they may be living. Is that cultural? Is that only for people in Rome or only for people in the first century? Paul makes no limitation of it that way. In fact, he asserts in verses 24 and 25 that these have worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. May I suggest to you then, there is nothing in any of these passages that would lead us to conclude that those are only cultural and therefore they are to be ignored basically today. Not only that, would you look at another example? We highlighted a moment ago that that text in 1 Timothy actually goes all the way back to creation as it describes women's roles in worship. And that again transcends culture. Maybe as another example... This one is the other side of that coin. There are some passages that do make a reference to restricting circumstances. When you and I studied on Wednesday evenings not too many weeks ago, from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we made a very strong emphasis on the inspired statement, This is a present distress 
There was something unique about the circumstances, and because of that, we understood. Remember, Paul said, it's not wise to marry right now. Now, you and I know the Bible endorses wholeheartedly the blessing of a godly marriage. But there was something in that passage that led Paul to say, for the time being, in light of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, that was only going to happen about six years from the time that was written. There were going to be some hardships, and Paul said, for the present distress. You and I interpreted that because the Holy Spirit gave us that phrase. And there was our clue that there was something unusual, something unique about that presentation. As you look at some more examples at the bottom, you and I could continue this discussion and notice a whole host of examples. Things that, in fact, are Bible clues to certain things that were cultural. As you look at that listing, perhaps before our time elapses upon us completely this evening, would you look at 1 Corinthians 11? This is another rather famous example. You and I might today ask the question, and we again studied this in its context on Wednesday evenings not too many weeks ago, about a woman wearing a veil. Should a woman wear a hat? Should she wear some kind of complete covering to her head? What does that passage say? When you and I studied that, we cast a strong spotlight, did we not, on verse 16. Let the Holy Spirit give us at least a strong word of guidance. It says, But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom. What is this, Paul? A custom. Therefore, we have here a description of a cultural consideration helping us appreciate that what was presented there can be viewed in the light of a matter of culture, at least in part, the custom associated with it. You and I can see then here are just a few examples where the text gives us a clue about a cultural significance. If we have that as a guide, we're free to interpret a passage with a strong cultural element. But may I say, any other time we'd better be very careful. Relegating a passage to culture could mean we're going to stand before God and give an answer for ignoring a passage that He never intended for us to ignore. Closing that slide, you may notice one could discuss circumcision and notice how that was important in an Old Testament era. But you and I know we aren't bound by that today. Paul himself said circumcision is nothing and so too is uncircumcision. But that which avails is the keeping of the commands of God. As you and I close that slide and also recognize heartedly a quick closing to this one. We've learned something then about understanding the culture in a passage. May we let God be the guide to how strongly we'll let culture dictate the way we look at it. Despite the modern hermeneutical approach, despite the historical critical approach that would wish to relegate certain unfavorable passages, we dare not do that. For after all, you'll notice on this passage, let's conclude our lesson again by saying, may we allow the culture to dictate a passage only when the Holy Spirit tells us we may do that. When He gives us the clue, when He inserts to us that that's the correct thing. Otherwise, the principles of the Bible stand timeless. They're meant for every person in every culture of every time. And aren't you thankful that God wrote the Bible that way? 
Aren't you thankful that we have the Word of God that truly shall stand forever? 1 Peter 1.25 This evening, as you and I examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, there might be someone in the audience who has come to realize that all isn't well with your soul that things are not as they ought to be, that Jesus would wish them to be for you. Maybe you've never become a Christian, but maybe upon the singing of songs or perhaps the Christian life of someone lived who is a neighbor or family member, you've come to realize that you need to make some changes and you need to obey the gospel. Realize that plan of salvation isn't cultural. It is true for you and for me, for everybody else. You need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If, however, you've become a Christian, but you haven't been faithful, you have allowed things to cause you, to move you aside from a walk of faith. Realize that you need to come back to your first love, and tonight what a wonderful opportunity you have we're going to stand in just a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement. Don't rely on just a historical critical approach. Let the Word of God speak the power that it has within it. For indeed, isn't it true that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God? It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect. That word means complete. You can stand absolutely and completely right before God following this. If we could help you do that tonight, we'd be honored and we'd invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.